You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome, everyone, to our discussion about Sri Lanka's parliamentary elections. My name is Tamana Salikuddin. I'm Director for South Asia Programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace. The U.S. Institute of Peace, or USIP, is, is our country's national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. I want to welcome you and say good morning to everyone in the U.S. and good evening to everyone joining us from South Asia. On August 5th, Sri Lanka held a momentous parliamentary election. It was the first South Asian nation to hold such uh, national elections amidst a global pandemic. Um, this election has going to have impacts for a long time to come, but is also particularly um, key right now in the place that Sri Lanka finds itself, both in terms of international affairs, domestically, economically, and politically. Today, we have a great panel of speakers who are all experts in their own right, and we're very excited to hear what they have to say. Um, please feel free to send us questions via the chat in YouTube, and we will have questions at the end. Um, but I want to just set the stage a little bit. A sleeping parliamentary victory uh, for the Sri Lanka People's Front has brought the Rajapaksa family back to the apex of power in Sri Lanka. And today we want to talk about what does that mean both immediately, but also for the long um, reconciliation process in Sri Lanka and other issues which the nation is facing. So we'd like to kick it off with Manjula Gajanayaka, who's a researcher attached to the Center for Policy Alternatives, a leading research and advocacy organization in Sri Lanka. He's also the national coordinator for CMEV, uh, a respected and leading election monitoring body that has covered elections in Sri Lanka since 1997. Manjula is the, the go-to person when it comes to technical aspects and details about this election. So I would love to turn it to Manjula first to lead us off with a broad overview of the election. Manjula? Welcome you all. The gathered notification for the purpose of electing the members for the ninth uh, parliament was issued by the president on 2nd March 2020. Since then, the ever longest election campaign period was on for this election and that was 153 days. On one hand, the decision taken by the election commission to hold the election after it was postponed two times amid COVID-19. On the other hand, the relief program implemented for the benefit of victims of the COVID-19 pandemic was subject to some degree of politicization. Uh, literally, the election is poorly a uh, rat rate competition, which ended with the voter turnout of 75.89. The election campaign, which is based over a full district, is nothing other than a fatal competition like doggy dog that creates provoking attitudes. One of uh, Sri Lankan political scientists, J.A. Wilson, stated once that the constitution introduced 
to Sri Lanka in 1978 as the gaullist system in Asia. The further noted that behind its a facade of democratic constitutional government led political authoritarianism. The election results this time is such that even Jayajavadana, which received fifth sixth power, would not have imagined. What are the aspects we can identify as the immediate results of this parliamentary election? Uh, firstly, I can mention that the leader of the United National Party, UNP, whose generation represented it over 44 years, could not even secure 5% of votes even in his most liked district. As the number of votes were so less for the UNP and thus didn't even count the Kalambu district votes. When Sri Lanka received the dominion status and produced the first ever prime minister and UNP has now no elected member to represent UNP in the parliament. This is going to be the first parliamentary inaugural session since 1947 after 16 elections having no single elected representative from the UNP. Even for the single membership received through the national list is yet to be agreed upon. Secondly, the votes received by Sri Lanka Podujana Peramuna, SLPP, at this election, election is just like a violent storm. How grave the velocity of that is, voters have elected two candidates who have allegations of murder cases. Not only that, from among the 208 candidates represented the previous parliament and contested this election from various parties have lost their parliament memberships. It is important to mention that among those 66, there are five female members of parliament too. Additionally, it seems that voters must have felt enough of 23 politicians who held ministerial portfolios. Thirdly, the other specific aspects reflected in this election was that the power centered on other key parties have also reduced gradually. United National Party had only one seat in the legislature, had a person like my father who went early in the morning to the polling centers, center decades ago and voted for elephant was knew about this situation he would have certainly fainted by seeing this election results. This indicates that despite old wine is in new, bot new bottles, our people are looking for something new. Elephant is a symbol in politics over 71 years and no young mayor is yet to take over UNP. The power initiated, the power entailed in UNP and SLFP being transferred to SLPP and SJB is a political matter that should be studied in depth. However, we should not forget that what once great Abraham Lincoln stated, an election cannot give a country a firm sense of direction if it has two or more national parties which merely have different names, but are as alike in their principles and aims as two peas in the in the same pot. The Speciality with the CMAB is that it mainly focuses on the election related violence incidents occurred. Accordingly, if I am asked about the conduct of this election, I can only say that the parliamentary election was conducted in a free and fair manner in general. However, 
if I am further asked to detail it out, I would say that the election was free, but not fair. I was born in 70s. Therefore, one of the best indicators to state that the election was peaceful is that neither a candidate nor a supporter was hospitalized due to violence on the election day. There were hundreds of violent incidents that involved grave hurts reported during 2004 election in Sri Lanka. The post-election period at that era was such that defeaters hide and winners come onto the streets to celebrate the victory and thus making the defeaters physically and psychologically hurt. Nowadays, the defeaters can share memes and make in bit of fun just to get some relief from the worry of defeat. I stated that the election was not fair. This is not an allegation only against the SLPP that received the ruling power. Whatever the types of election is held in this country, which doesn't happen in an equal level playing field, when the running party was given 17 minutes during the main news bulletin, National People's Power, NPP, had been given only seven seconds on certain days. The other fact is that even the functioning of social media has also now become a force that cannot be controlled. We as CMEV complained about thousands of social media posts detrimental to candidates or political parties, but the election commission was only able to take actions for a bit over 10%. We should acknowledge that the election commission doesn't have a strong mechanism with human and physical resources to make immediate intervention towards to all matters related to social media in an election period. Above all, one of the very important issues is that the election campaign finance has not been regulated in this country. You may know that there is a traditional sport called Tug of Boro during Singhala Hindu New Year Festival. There, the fundamental rule is that each party should essentially have an equal level, play, level playing field. It is common for any game, but in Sri Lanka, that is not the case for politics. The situation was not different even this election. According to our estimates, estimations, the estimated election campaign cost for 31 days was 2,400 million rupees. It is 130 million of US dollars. Whatever the cost we monitor, we can only monitor about 25% or to 30% of the potential estimated cost. We do not know how much funds coming from foreign countries in country companies, Sinhala and Tamil diaspora to the elections. Given such context, the candidates contested and won in Jaffna of Northern Province, Digamadulla of Eastern Province, and Matra District of Southern Province had spent huge amount of money for their respective election campaigns. You need to understand that if the campaign expenses are so high, even in this COVID-19 restricted, restricted context, how high the campaign cost would have been had the election been held in a normal social context. The estimated campaign cost incurred on five main television channels only on the 2nd of August, just before the cooling off period was 94 million rupees. The total estimated cost of nine TV channels and five radio channels are 1,108 million rupees for 30 days. The total number of political advertisement in 18 hours on 1st August telecasted on 
five main TV channels are 3,458. We did a special monitoring mission to Matara district to the in down south to observe one of the meetings to which the president attended and thus it revealed that around 6.3 million rupees, 25 US dollars per day had been incurred on one day for just one event. One another thing should be noted that is about the use of media during the election. What happened during the presidential election, the contest was between the opposition and the SL, SLPP pro-media. Therefore, I would like to quote Thomas Jefferson. Once he say, stated that were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. If the future elections are also to be conducted in the same manner, then my opinion is that not only a society without newspapers, but also a society without a government which would be fine. Finally, I should tell you something about women's representation. This time around, we couldn't even have the 13 female members of parliament who represented the last parliament. Our courageous women launched this time also a campaign named One Vote for Her. However, my opinion is that we need to work hard at the ground level to bring a change. Women in politics doesn't just mean that women receive nominations until and unless some tangible powers to women within the hierarchy of political parties, women in politics will be stagnant. Other aspects is that the attitudes. attitudes. We should never forget that the ones who have become a barrier to women in politics are the party leaders. No one has been able to move beyond from the thinking of Ponnambalam Ramanathan. At a time when there was a Donham, uh, discourse about women's engagement in politics, he stated before the Donamo Commission by giving verbal evidences that do not throw pearls before swine, for they will turn and rend you what suits European women will not suit us. What was mentioned above is what can be shared given this limited time, but it would be a gap if I do not mention something about debatable situation connected to the counting process. The counting process of this country is such a responsible process and there is no way a counting officer of the election commission can make a candidate of their choice win the election. If otherwise can be done, how come the candidate who held the position of returning officers and ministry secretary could lose the election contest? Because their peer officers were the ones managed counting process. So regarding the post displayed in social media is just a strategy used by the defeaters to get themselves happy. Please don't forget that the untruth has wings. Finally, I wish to remind you two things. The victory of SLPP is not a random thing. That was something planned from 2015. The other factor is that I believe that the election was held amid the COVID-19 pandemic is a positive example for the entire world. Many expected that there would be a second wave of COVID-19 to occur after the election, but we, the Sri Lankans, are still safe. The total official cost incurred for the election is 8,500 million rupees. It is just like 461 million of US dollars. Even having spent such huge amount of money for the election, we have elected our rulers in an election that was conducted in a free environment.
that is something for all people who respect democracy to be pleased. Thank you. Thanks very much, Manjula. It's very interesting um, in terms of the high voter turnout and yet, you know, fair access to the elections. Just a note for everyone who's watching at home, our chat function is also available on our USIP event page. So if you look at the video player on the USIP event page, there's a chat function box there. So please uh, send in your questions. And next, I'd like to turn to a good friend and somebody I admire a lot, Bhavani Fonseca, who's a senior researcher, uh, a human rights attorney, uh, an attorney at law with the Center for Policy Alternatives. Her focus and her research has been on national and international advocacy and public interest litigation. She's worked on uh, assisting victims in affected populations around Sri Lanka, and she served on the National Human Rights Action Plan for Sri Lanka between 2017 and 2021. Um, so I welcome Bhavani <coughs> to talk about what does this mean? So the elections happen. Uh, the SLPP now has a two-thirds supermajority in parliament. What does this mean for Sri Lanka? What does it mean for your constitution? And what do you see going forward? Um, thanks, Tamana, and thank you to USIP for hosting this event. And it's very timely considering we, uh, Parliament will start its sittings on, in two days' time. So this is, I believe, the first event where we are looking into the implications of the elections, but also in terms of what is, uh, what's in store in, in Sri Lanka. Um, I mean, I'm glad that Manjula set us in terms of what happened with elections and some of the issues in terms of election monitoring, but also reforms related to elections that we need to look at. As you said, we are now having a government that had a very huge victory. Um, many didn't think we, they would get the two thirds. They have now proven they have. Um, it has implications in terms of the government, but also opposition, and hopefully we'll have some time to look into these things. But one needs to just uh, take a moment to look at what happened in November when the president was elected. Um, he was elected on a platform of a strong leader, the need for security, stability, discipline, um, and economic revival. And those are issues that we saw in the last few months. With the COVID pandemic, and I think it's very important to look at the issues related to the pandemic. Um, this whole premise was further reiterated that we need a strong government, a strong leader. Um, and we, we're seeing trends of hyper-executive presidency, creeping militarization, and these are premised on this whole rhetoric that we are in need of stability, of security. Um, so with the pandemic, the government was able to show that they've had things under control. As human rights activist lawyers, we raise very serious issues in terms of fundamental rights, in terms of civil liberties, about the response, whether it was legal, proportionate, but generally across Sri Lanka, there was this sense that this government, the government of Gotabe Rajapaksa, was able to bring the pandemic under control. And that played in with the elections and it's played in now in terms of the mandate given. And I think it's very important to also recognize 
that the Easter Sunday attacks in 2019, the pandemic all contributed to this um, feeling among many Sri Lankans, I mean, hopefully Guru speaks to how the minorities are feeling, but majority community feeling that there's a, they need a government that can deliver. So the government that was elected with this massive majority, there's a lot of expectations in terms of delivering on constitution reform, on stability, on discipline, on security, um, on the economic front. And we will have to see whether this government is able to deliver. So there are high expectations. And as you quite rightly said, they have the two thirds. So reforms are possible to moving the parliament when they meet on the 20th. I don't want to speculate in terms of what form these reforms would take because we haven't seen this, the details of the reforms. But what's been said in the public, in statements, official statements by the government indicates there will be changes to some of the pro-democracy reforms that were introduced in 2015, which introduced checks on the executive presidency. So that, that's an important thing to understand, that they are speaking about a rollback in terms of the what is called the 19th Amendment. There's also in the public domain uh, and statements where they say there's going to be changes, possible reforms to the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which provided for devolution of power. And now we're also hearing reports that there may be reforms to the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which provides for language rights. Now, these are in the public domain, so I'm just referring to that. But we would have to see what the government is going to deliver in terms of constitution reform, whether they would need a referendum or whether it would be something that they expect parliament to pass. So a lot of expectations as to what they can do. And they've said in September they're likely to showcase what is going to be introduced in terms of constitutional reform. But the sense is there's going to be a rollback, there's going to be likely a backsliding of the democratic reforms that we've seen. What does that mean? Possibly we will see great authoritarianism where there's a hyper-presidency, there could be implications to the independent institutions, there could be implications to the judiciary and the rule of law, in the last few years, we've seen institutions act in an independent manner. Would we go back to the years where we've seen politicized institutions? We don't know. I mean, these are early days, we'll have to see. But these are worrying trends. In terms of also, I think it's very important to also speak to some of the issues of human rights. We've seen um, lawyers, media, activists attacked some detained uh, with due process safeguards ignored. So there is a fear that dissent, the space for dissent will shrink quite fast. Again, we'll have to see mm -hmm. how this plays out. So that this is also worrying trends in terms of what that means. We've also seen, and I'm aware the time is short, but very quickly, we've also seen uh, increased military and security sector role in governance. And this has implications for reconciliation, it has implications for governance. 
But there is a worrying trend. Now we've seen um, secretaries appointed. We've had former military personnel in these uh, positions, but we've also seen new actors, increased military, former military actors playing key roles in governance. So what does that mean in terms of future? So there are many I think we need to be looking to. Um, I think the next couple of weeks, months, possibly years are going to have huge implications in terms of democracy in Sri Lanka in terms of rights and reconciliation. Um, but again, early days, and we will have to see whether this government is able to deliver on their key promises and the role of the opposition, as I said before, it's very fragmented now, very weak, uh, whether civil society will have space, whether we will have space to even have these kind of conversations are to be seen. But again, early days, but very worrying signs. Thank you very much, Bhavani, uh, for that. That's very interesting. Now I'd like to uh, turn to Dr. Kumar Videv Guruparan, who's a senior lecturer attached to the Department of Law at University of Jaffna. He's also a practicing attorney in the civil appellate litigation, administrative law, and human rights law. Um, Dr. Guruparan was the founding executive director of Adyalam Center for Policy Research, a think tank based in Jaffna. Um, I, you know, Guru, I'd, I'd love to hear from you what the mood is in Jaffna. You know, we, as Bhavani pointed out, this majority of people voted for stability, for security. Um, they see in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the, you know, the aftermath of the Easter bombings and just generally the reconciliation from years of civil war, people seem to be opting at the ballot box for a strong government, stability and security. But is that the mood in Jaffna? What do you see from there? I mean, what do the minority communities, both Tamils and others, what do they think that this election portends for them? Please. Well, um, thank you uh, for this invitation to uh, the US Institute of Peace. Um, in terms of the verdict itself uh, from uh, the North and East, where the majority of the um, numerically smaller communities live, particularly the Tamil and Muslim communities, uh, it's been a fractured verdict, particularly within the Tamil community. Uh, the dominant role that the Tamil National Alliance played in the post-war context uh, and in the elections and the two elections preceding the um, uh, preceding the post-war, uh, preceding 2009, uh, that is broken. So in 2010, uh, the Tamil National Alliance won 14 seats. They bettered their performance in uh, 2015 uh, tallying 16 seats and they've come down to 10 seats. And if you look at who has uh, occupied that space, parties that were critical of the Tamil National Alliance engagement uh, with the uh, last government, the government supposedly that brought in pro-democratic reforms and was willing to engage in accountability and reconciliation because the delivery wasn't to the expectation uh, the other Tamil nationalist parties reaped on that, uh, reaped on that, um, on, the, on, on the gap that was uh, developed by by way of not being able to deliver on the promises of the 2015 government. But interestingly, I think, uh, and this is particularly so in Jaffna and Batikalo, uh, there have been significant inroads that uh, pro-government parties have made in this election to the extent that almost 100,000 votes, to be very accurate, 94,000 odd votes have been cast in favor of two political parties uh, that are aligned with the present government in Jaffna, who have one seat each, so two seats from Jaffna and two seats from Batikolo. In fact, in Batikolo, it's much worse. If you um, tally the votes that 
pro-government parties, pro-government Tamil parties have got in Batiklo. Uh, they over they have overperformed the Tamil National Alliance uh, in Batiklo, for example. In Ampara, we've lost Tamil representation uh, because of calculated um, uh, positioning by the government. They brought in former uh, Eastern uh, commander of the LTT to contest separately, who managed to split votes among the Tamil population, and because of it, Ampara has. Uh, not uh, return the Tamil representation after a very long time. Uh, so it's a very fractured mandate. It's a very worrying mandate. It shows uh, Basil Rajapaksha has gone in public. Uh, Basil Rajapaksha, the president's brother, the president and prime minister's other brother, has gone in public to claim that their strategy has worked in the northeast of getting in government MPs from the north and east. Um, so it also shows that while, while that strategy has worked, it's also true that uh, Tamil nationalist parties have been forced in this election to grapple not with, not just with the national question, quote unquote, the national question, but also with issues of day-to-day uh, -day economic issues uh, on development matters, so on and so forth. But because 10 years after the war has ended, these issues have not been addressed. So I think this is a major challenge for Tamil parties now in that it is not just enough for them to be uh, seen to be engaging on the national question and accountability when it comes to uh, national politics and internationally, that they need to deliver on the day-to-day -day issues that people face. That's a very resounding uh, message that is coming from the Tamil people in particular. The Muslim parties have done well um, uh, with, uh, in alliance with the SJB. Um, Sri Lanka Muslim Congress has done well. ACMC, they're also on Muslim Congress under Rishad Baladin, who's probably a much more hardliner when it comes to Muslim politics, is also doing better. They have opened, um, they have, uh, for the first time they won from Ampara, for the first time they won from Puttalam, uh, and, and it used to be seen as a northern Muslim party, but they made inroad into eastern uh, Muslim politics as well, which will be challenging for the more sort of, you know, uh, apparently moderate uh, Muslim uh, political party, the Sri Lanka Muslim Congress. So that is also something to be seen. But overall, because uh, the SLPP will have no engagement with Muslim party, uh, all of them are at the moment aligned against Sri Lanka, uh, the SNPP, and are with uh, the Sajid Premadas Alliance. I must also say that the SJB has been disappointing in that uh, it, has, it has completely ignored the uh, minority parties that are part of its alliance. The Tamil uh, People's Alliance, which is an alliance of upcountry uh, political parties, uh, the Muslim uh, parties that contested then wanted nationalist slots uh, within the SJB, which SJB did not consider at all, and they are not very happy with Sajid Premadasa, the leader of the, uh, the, the SJB, the breakaway uh, party from the UNP over this matter. So SJB is not exhibiting uh, signs of even accommodating uh, minority political parties that were willing to sail with them. This is uh, very unfortunate in that they don't, they are not putting themselves forward as an alternative, as a pluralist uh, alliance uh, to the SLPP, and this is not surprising for a keen observer of Sri Lankan politics, but it's very sad, uh, particularly given also what Bhavani said, that the opposition is not throwing up, is not going to be uh, anytime soon throwing up a challenge to the kind of politics that the SLPP is going to be doing. I just want to comment on the, the kind of victory that the SLPP has won. Let's remember that this is not the first time that post-war that there is a two-thirds majority that the government has won in 2010. On the, uh, in the in the immediate backdrop of the winning of the war, they managed to thirds almost similar number of seats, 144, 145 this time. But along with the alliance partners, they are 149 uh, this time around. Uh, they have managed to secure uh, um, 
close to the same amount of votes that voted by Rajapaksha won in the presidential elections of 2019, if not more actually, slightly more than what voted uh, uh, by Rajapaksha won. So it's it's uh, so the performance of uh, the Mahindra Rajapaksha led uh, SNPP has been it was equivalent to what Gotabaya Rajapaksha produced in, um, 2019, in, in November 2019. So the key question is this, as Bhavani says, so it's going to be hyper-executive uh, uh, presidentialism that is going to be the focus. I mean, the central petal idea of, uh, the, the, sorry, the central idea of singular business nationalism that centralization is required for a uh, keeping the country together, this this idea that you know the country can be united only under a very centralized leadership, and two the argument of efficiency, uh, which is also being pushed quite um, uh, strongly this time around, that an efficient government is one that centralizes power, and that the only way we are going to get Sri Lanka to function again to be economically prosperous is by uh, creating a stable government is is what I think delivered. So both economic grievances. Let's not forget that both economic grievances as well as the kind of majoritarianism that they were able to develop in the backdrop of uh, how the 2015-2019 uh, government played out, particularly on the question that they were accommodating the minorities too much, is what led the SLPP into power. So it remains to be seen. Now, Mahindra Rajapaksha in 2010-15, to 15, while keeping alive the majoritarian spirit, turning on to Muslims now, creating a new enemy in the Muslims, so on and so forth, kept the majoritarianism fire going, he floundered on the economic side of things. So if this government is to remain in power beyond the five years that they are going to come in, I think they have to perform on the economic front to, for the Sinhalese to return them back to power in five years' time. And I think what is also going to happen is along with addressing the economic uh, needs of the South, they are going to keep uh, pushing for this uh, nation-state idea, this uninational idea of Sri Lanka being a one-nation, one-state. Uh, so the use of the Department of Archaeology, the Department of Forest, uh, or using task forces, using military particularly. I mean, just yesterday, we've heard now probably confirmed news that there might be a new governor for the Northern Province who might be an ex-major general. Uh, so, uh, so this is going to be a government that is not going to uh, to be accommodated. And what, and what Tamil and Muslim parties, and particularly Tamil parties, will struggle with is to find the points of engagement with this government. Because very clearly, Gotabaya Rajabaksha said, has said that uh, on the question of engaging on the national question, he's saying there is nothing of that sort. Development is the only thing. There is no need for a political solution. The only thing that needs to be engaged with with the North and East is development. And with accountability, he's rubbishing it aside, right? He might say, yes, of course, we'll uh, deliver on the obligations that was undertook in Resolution 31, but we know uh, for a fact that he's not going to engage on any uh, matters. Of so, so, so the real question is, uh, when it comes to, uh, I think the struggle in the next five years is as to whether you can keep what is already there, which is the 13th Amendment and the provincial council system. India will play a key role. There is expectation that he... India will resist any attempt to uh, do away with the 13th Amendment or to whittle down powers under the 13th Amendment. I think Gotabaya Rajabaksha would try to engage with India on the question of trying to reduce what is there already in the 13th Amendment, which Tamil parties have complained right throughout is insignificant and what has been conceived is too little, too late. And it also remains to be seen whether in terms of the economic uh, rules, problems that the current government has, whether their reliance on China is going to be enough. Now, if, if, if going back to the West and particularly to the IMF is going to be 
something that the government cannot avoid, uh, that is something uh, that will be an interesting factor in terms of navigating how uh, we understand the SLPP government. I just want to conclude by saying this. I mean, one of the differences between the 2010-15 government and the, 2000, uh, the government that has been elected in right now is that there are a number of marginal, um, very uh, radical singular Buddhist forces who are now aligned with Gotabaya. Uh, there was this group called Yutukama uh, who fielded uh, candidates in the elections who have uh, who have done well. There is Yitmaga, also uh, Gotabaya's uh, think tank who are also very close to the president. And these people have very, really radical ideas about what constitutional reform is needed uh, to explicitly uh, moving towards a singular Buddhist uh, state, uh, to strengthening uh, the executive presidency, to almost making the parliament irrelevant, uh, to, to making uh, singular the official language of the country. So it remains to be seen as to whether the forces, the so-called, I mean, I, I say this is relatively moderate forces under the uh, Mahindraj Baksha are able to contain and resist the growing influence of the radical uh, wing of uh, the SLPP who have the president's year in particular. So I think the next five, uh, two to three years, we'll see this struggle. And I think the SLPP's own internal struggles in terms of how they are going to poise themselves in the next couple of years, will define the direction of Sri Lanka, not uh, the opposition, but by the SLPP itself in terms of how it uh, plays out internally. Thank you. Thanks so much, Guru. That was very fascinating. Uh, these are really um, some troubling developments for I think minorities in Sri Lanka. Uh, next, I'd like to turn to Alex Keenan, Alan Keenan, sorry, who's a senior consultant with the International Crisis Group covering Sri Lanka, and he's been doing research in and on Sri Lanka for more than 20 years, focusing on conflict dynamics and the politics of human rights and international justice. He's also a visiting fellow at the Center for Women, Peace and Security at the London School of Economics. Alan, I'd, I'd like to turn to you to discuss potential flashpoints for conflict and violence, um, you know, it, because of this election and the impact of the new government. And also, how will this new government either deal with or exacerbate the, the already existing tensions. I mean, all our speakers have outlined what a complicated situation this election takes place in. The COVID crisis, the economic um, downturn in the aftermath of the Easter bombings from last year, and still in the larger scale midst of reconciliation within the country. Um, that being said, from the outside, you're seeing India and China, um, competing for influence in Sri Lanka and most Western countries congratulating the Rajapaksas, you know, and not really noting uh, much else. So I turn to you to really give us an, what is the impact? What do you see as the overall long-term results from this election? Mm. Okay, thanks. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. It's nice to see all my friends and or some of my friends in Sri Lanka with me here. And um, it's good to have this opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the last point that uh, Guru just made is a really important one. And I just add that I think I agree that the internal dynamics in the SLPP will really be where the action is. But the question and that raises for all of us who are outside the SLPP, whether that's in Sri Lanka or people like me, is whether there's a, a way to influence the internal SLPP discussion. So I just want to get that out there to begin with. But um, from the perspective of someone who works for a conflict resolution organization, the International Crisis Group, 
I think the most worrisome aspect of the current situation is the increased concentration and centralization of power in a very small group in the Rajapaksa family and their, in their sort of longtime supporters in the military and the Buddhist clergy. Um, and, and the lack of safety valves and opportunities for the opposition and ethnic minorities uh, to affect changes in policy through peaceful protest, dissent, engagement. So we've seen in Sri Lanka's history, as well as of course many other countries, that, um, that this, these lack of safety valves, this sort of uh, um, marginalization to such an extent that various important constituencies don't have really any say over policy, this is very dangerous. We've seen it contribute directly to the uh, two uprisings by the leftist, then very nationalist um, JVP in 1971 in the late 80s. We saw it as a major contributor uh, to the growth of, the, of Tamil militancy when so many young Tamil um, people felt that they were excluded, that they weren't represented by their, by their um, older political parties who had no influence, and they turned to, to violence. <clears throat> so with this history in mind, we can see already very worrisome developments, some of which have, are, I think, been sketched out quite well by my colleagues. Um, we have a strong government that came into power on a platform that gives clear privilege to one community over others, um, uh, that has a weak opposition, and that has already made clear to civil society, to NGOs, and to liberal critics that they are going to be um, under a lot of pressure and that they should be, you know, basically be quiet or else. Um, and I think, you know, we've already seen the big just in the last year, a growing repression of dissent, of lawyers, of uh, questioning, surveillance, intimidation of NGOs, uh, people already known to the government uh, as, as potential troublemakers have been under surveillance and, you know, sort of various harassment efforts. Um, and there are real protection issues, I think, um, that this raises for a lot of, a lot of people, some, some of our friends. Um, I think in terms of potential uh, sources of actual violent conflict. Um, I think there's three main ones and they're kind of obvious, I think, but um, I'll sketch them out. And this is not a prediction. This is just sort of, if we want to think ahead, where could you know, real trouble be, be brewing and ultimately what can be done to, uh, to limit its, its, um, its chances and to sort of channel sort of political um, energies in political ways as opposed to ultimately sort of violent ways. So with regard to the status of, of Sri Lanka's Tamils, um, we see that their regions of their historical, you know, where they're historically the majority in the North and the East remain heavily militarized. Real dangers of possible new land grabs, either for the military, for Buddhist temples, or for commercial or other forms of development. We've seen that already happen over the years, over decades indeed, could well happen again. Um, now the government is promising increased economic development but it remains unclear how consultative they will be. The odds are not very. Um, so it's unlikely that the local Tamil communities will be very involved um, in where development happens, how it develops, how, how it happens, who benefits. And it's certainly clear the government has no interest in addressing the longstanding grievances of Tamils at their political marginalization. In fact, as, as Guru and I think um, Bhavani just mentioned, some in the new government are pushing for the limited provincial powers that are there under the 13th Amendment to be done away with. And finally, there's absolutely no interest in addressing any of the human rights abuses and the, um, or the war crimes or possible crimes against humanity um, or what some many Tamils believe were sort of evidence of genocide. Um, accountability for any of that is completely off the table. And those activists and politicians who have pushed for, for those issues to be addressed and for there to be some form of accountability are at increased risk. Now, I think there's not much resistance, you know, so certainly no violent resistance is on the cards anytime soon. 
I think political resistance will be very difficult to mount um, due to fear, surveillance, heavy militarization. But I think we have, to, we have to be worried that eventually, as long as the underlying issues are not dealt with and new grievances are added, um, and there seems to be no way to affect change from within the political system, it's, hard, it's not hard to see how a cycle of sort of resist, peaceful resistance being met by violent repression and sort of ultimately turning into violent resistance, that's quite possible. Um, so I think we just have to be very worried. And, you know, if the government doesn't, doesn't change its course or begin to sort of address these issues in a more nuanced way. In terms of the status of Sri Lanka's Muslims, I think we've seen years of anti-Muslim campaigning based on rumors, myths, especially about alleged extremism among Muslims, um, which was often, I think, has been a, a misleading word just simply to, to name their, the growing religiosity of the community. Um, but um, the Easter bombings last year by a small group of Muslims with virtually no support in the, in the wider community, um, those attacks, which were deadly and devastating um, for those affected and for the whole country, seemed to confirm for many Sinhalese, Buddhist and Christian, as well as some Tamils, that Muslims were a problem, that they were dangerous, that they, were, that they pose a threat as a community rather than just as a few individuals. Um, and in the wake of that, I think we've seen the government um, even before they took power um, in, through you know, the election of, of uh, Gotabia, but certainly since, um, has basically taken on the agenda of these militant Buddhist groups. Um, so all the things that used to be marginal, I think have been increasingly and will probably likely be in, increasingly incorporated within government policy. So I think we're likely to see laws to regulate Muslim religious practices. We're likely to see economic pressure on Muslim businesses continue and perhaps increase. We're likely to see land grabs of Muslim land in the East, particularly um, in the name of preserving heritage, which really means preserving Buddhist heritage. Um, now, right now, I think the government has, in terms of potential violence, the government has things, I think, very much under control. Um, any, any violence that would happen would be with, the, um, with government acceptance, as I think was the case under Mahinda Rajapaksa's government when there were periodic um, sort of anti-Muslim anti violence in 2013-14. Um, but I think it's possible that at some point, Muslims might be a useful scapegoat, uh, either you know, for the economic crisis or just as a way to, to let off steam uh, if, if there's growing discontent about government policy on any number of possible lines. Or there's also the possibility, um, I mean, what we saw, what we've learned since the Easter bombings, as more evidence has come out, is that some of the the energy, the negative energy that propelled this small group of Muslims to, to turn to jihadi violence was born of their sense that most Muslims in Sri Lanka were, were, being, were, at, were at risk from militant Buddhists and that their, their sort of identity and culture was, was under threat. Um, so I think there remains a potential that if the sort of policies of humiliation, intimidation, pressure, um, <clears throat> demonization continue, there might well be another small group of, of Muslims who could react violently. So I think that needs to be, that small chance needs to be um, sort of kept very small and reduced ultimately to, to, uh, to nothing if possible. Then I think there's a third possible line of violent conflict, which would be the possibility of, um, of public protest among Sinhalese, most likely on economic lines, if the economic crisis, which is already severe and was, was in, um, was a serious set of problems even before the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic. Um, if the economic crisis gets worse, um, 
you know, could it get bad enough that people begin to protest and could, and how will those protests be handled? Now we've seen, I mean, I think has already been made clear by Bhavani and, and Guru, uh, voters are expecting to see economic improvement. They're expecting their lives to be improved. But what happens if their lives no, don't improve, but also actually get worse economically? H how will the government respond to their discontent? Now we've seen the past behavior of, the Raj of a Rajapaksa government suggests it could well resort to physical repression. There was one person and many hundreds injured, one person killed and many hundreds injured in a protest in the free trade zone in 2011. There were three killed and many injured in protests about water contamination in Bellavaria in 2013. So there's, there's a precedent here. Um, uh, finally, I think we need to look at the international context. Now, Sri Lanka's conflicts, particularly the, 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 um, the Tamil, sort of the, you know, the, um, the war with the LTTE and the whole kind of um, the growth of Tamil militancy, that was always in part an effect of international dynamics and particularly the role of India, which helped train and, and, and foster Tamil militancy, exploiting it for their own particular uh, international aims. But I think in the current context, um, there are obviously growing worries in India and among Western powers about China's growing influence. Um, and their competition for sort of the, the way in which Sri Lanka is a point of competition for these various foreign powers will affect what kinds of economic assistance is made available to the government, which will in turn affect Sri Lanka's, the Sri Lankan government's ability to handle their economic issues and their economic um, pressures. And um, while I think we're a long way from seeing any kind of active conflict, international conflict, I think the international dynamic will have a, a great impact on on the, in, on the internal domestic um, uh, sort of dynamics. So finally, I mean, what can be done to mitigate the risks of, of unmet political demands ultimately taking, uh, provoking violence? I mean, I think there's not much in, you know, there is some forms of influence over the government. And I think to the extent that they are there, whether domestically or internationally, government needs to be urged not to over, overreach, to, um, to use their extraordinary powers not to sort of further marginalize Muslim and Tamil communities and, and the political opposition, but rather to bring them in to reach some at least you know, modest sense of consensus rather than exclusion. Um, they should be urged not to go down the route of repression when they're faced with criticism and protest. They should be urged to preserve the independence of the, of the oversight commissions and of the Constitutional Council, which would be at risk if the 19th Amendment is in fact abolished. Um, and I think UN and foreign governments need to do all they can to protect human rights defenders and to help in other ways to keep uh, democratic space open so that there is some fluidity and some sense of possibility of change through political means <clears throat> uh, rather than only through, only through violence. I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Alan. Um, it is very interesting as you're, you all are talking about the pressures on democracy, um, that it is actually the democratic process that has brought about um, this, you could say, this growing rise of authoritarianism or one nation, one state ideas. Um, thank you for all the audience who's sending in comments and questions. You can go to our uh, page on USIP if you, and use the chat function to give us some more questions. Uh, we have about, <coughs> excuse me, 10 minutes, and I'd love to turn to Manjula. Um, <coughs> we have some questions, excuse me, about um, um, candidates who were arrested, at least 22 candidates were arrested, arrested prior to the elections. Additionally, almost 4 million voters were not able to cast their votes in the elections. Why is this happening? What do you think it 
means for democracy in the future and what are the ways to fix this? Yeah, uh, as an election observer, I don't see that uh, this as a surprise. In every election in this country, at least 20% of people are unable to cast their vote. All these people are ones who have got registered in the annual vote registration process. However, uh, around 2 million Sri Lankan in other countries do not get a chance to cast their vote because there is no out-of-country voting facility. On the other hand, other than the staff working in government offices who are designed for election work and the ones who work in security forces, other government staff do not get an opportunity to cast their votes. For example, remand prisoners, private uh, security personnel, journalists, election observers, etc. Until the election acts are amended to include advanced voting facilities, this issue cannot be resolved. However, as this is this as an issue over decades, the impact of this on the election results is something to be detailed analysis. Thanks very much, Manjula. Um, I'd like to turn to Bhavani. We've been getting some questions. Guru mentioned Yusukama and some of the more extreme elements uh, in the ruling coalition. Um, the parliament is set to meet in two days. You know, what are your expectations of this parliament? Um, what are the possible checks? And I, there's some questions online of what do you think the effect or the impact of Yusukama and other groups will be on uh, on, on this new government in Parliament. So over to you, Bhavani. Thanks, Romana. I'm, I, I don't think we can go too deep into this in a few minutes, but um, in the last couple of months, um, we've seen some of these groups emerging quite prominently, not just Yutukama, but also Vyatmaga and uh, Elia and a few others that have a particular view in terms of how the vision for Sri Lanka. And uh, there's the professionals, the former military, a very, um, the, the, the outlook is for uh, efficient Sri Lanka um, and with very little prospect for reconciliation, human rights, all of that. So. Yutukama came up with some proposals. Uh, they do have two members now in parliament, or they will have two members in parliament, one through the national list. Um, and it's to be seen how influential they would be, as well as others that are close to the Rajapaksa family and particular Rajapaksas. You know, I think the point made is that there's many Rajapaksas that are going to be in government and there might possibly be power centers that we need to be very, very aware of how that plays in from the president to the prime minister, as well as others emerging very popular Rajapaksa. So this is to be seen. Um, but with parliament, this question of parliament, I think the point that was I failed to make is we haven't had a parliament since the 2nd of March. So for over five months, we haven't had a functioning parliament. We haven't had legislative oversight. And this whole prospect that the government was saying is, you know, they contain the pandemic without the parliament, without having legislative oversight is very, very worrying. That trend that we may be heading to, where they made the case that the executive presidency 
um, can run this country without a key arm of government. So when parliament meets in two days, we will have to see the formations. We will have to see who comes in as speaker. Uh, in the last few years, the speaker played a key role in maintaining parliamentary democracy. Would we have something similar in the future? I, I, I'd love to be given that same optimism, but parliament has a key role in terms of legislative oversight, in terms of committees, in terms of scrutinizing bills. Now the government has already said they're going to have key reforms introduced. What would be the role of parliament? Would they be able to play a uh, an effective check or would it be a rubber stamping operation? We do not know. But what's worrying is the opposition is quite considerably weak. Um, so what role would they play? What role would the minority politicians play? Would they have any bargaining powers? I mean, we saw in the last parliament, there were key politicians playing a critical role in 2018 when the constitutional coup happened. There were people who stepped up in terms of protecting democracy. Would we have that? So um, I don't know in terms of who can play these roles, but there are new actors, there are new dimensions. Um, and within the government itself, there, there are going to be key actors that will play. Um, that all said, Sri Lanka has had a, thri a very vibrant civil society. And regardless of the surveillance threats, possible legislation regulations that will be introduced, it's important for all of us to play a very key role in monitoring and in terms of challenging. Um, and I think that's also something that we have to uh, define for ourselves, how we move forward in the future. Thank you very much, Bhavani. Um, very quickly, I do want to turn, Guru, to you. You mentioned India a little bit. Earlier this year, when uh, Prime Minister Rajapaksa had visited India, you know, at that time, Prime Minister Modi had raised the 13th Amendment and the importance of um, the rights and justice for Tamils in Sri Lanka. At the same time, you know, the Prime Minister Rajapaksa was non-committal about it, but Sri Lanka is very interested in uh, assistance in terms of loan deferments and other economic assistance from India. So how do you see this playing out in terms of um, protecting the 13th Amendment and also for protecting uh, Tamil rights and reconciliation in a larger sense? No, I think I think in 2015, uh, in the elections, Mahindra Adhipaksha openly accused India of playing a role in regime change. Now, whether that that, that allegation stands uh, on any factual uh, truth at all is a different matter. But I think one of the things that the Rajapakshas are pretty pretty clear is to keep India happy. Now, uh, I think it will come by way of an India first policy that you know. Uh, that we will engage with China, we will engage with the rest of the world, uh, but that we will give India priority on matters that India wants us to give priority. So it might be strategic, it might not be necessarily economic. Uh, so on strategic matters, on matters relating to Tamils, I think uh, India, uh, they will give India the first, uh, you know, first priority uh, status. Now, having said that, I also uh, do think that the Indian foreign bureaucracy in particular would want to keep Thirteenth um, uh, Amendment intact in, in in its current form. But if uh, Modi, I mean, as is uh, sometimes argued, is uh, uh, 
taking foreign policy uh, uh, the details of the foreign policy into his own hands and if rajapakshas are willing to give um, to play into and play fiddle to the larger sort of you know hindutva policy that uh, modi is interested in uh, across the uh, pork strait it will be interesting to see whether modi will tolerate uh, some amendments to the 13th amendment which rajapakshas want to bring in i think particularly they are looking at um, 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 uh, curtailing uh, police powers in the 13th amendment which has never been used by any province actually uh but also land power so i think i think they'll be very particular about that i mean if the rajabakshas have their own way uh, uh, the 13th amendment will be rolled back entirely and they'll go for some sort of district councils or village council sort of thing but i think to keep india satisfied they will but i don't think india i mean this is my reading and sulaiman's reading i i have no expertise over the economics of these um, questions but i don't think india will be able to fully satisfy Sri Lanka's economic needs at the moment. So, yes, take money from China as long as you are not touching on our strategic interests would be India's position, and I think they have maintained this position in the last uh, four or five years at least. Um, so, so, but the question is, will China be able to still, uh, on its own, uh, take care of Sri Lanka's uh, foreign um, foreign currency needs, uh, or will that not be enough? Will Sri Lanka need to uh, look further than that? I think these will have. Uh, these will have an impact uh, i just also want to say this if i may add um, that uh, I, i i i mean given the two thirds majority that they have uh, given the uh, very uh, centralized figure that gotabaya rajabaksha is parliament will have a very very reduced role um, i mean it's something to be very worried about because uh, uh, i mean jvp which did play a role in the past in keeping the sectoral oversight committees alive so on and so forth is also reduced in strength uh, there are not many within the stb who have that favor uh, to take this on uh, so so there are also uh, there, there, there's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether they are going to allow opposition mps to head up these oversight committees still or whether they are going to pack them with uh, government mps uh, so i think one of the one of the main uh, issues that is going to be there is that in terms of separation of powers uh, the parliament is going to be sidelined to an extent that we've never seen before and the problem in the judiciary is that i mean so yes we for example anticipate that uh, there'll be changes to laws that uh, impact on the not for profit sector on ngos on and so forth and the problem is whether the judiciary is willing to stand up uh, and be independent or will it drag its feet as it is a normal practice on matters that comes before it when it comes to matters that are part of the bread and butter um, agenda of the uh, of the current president uh, and so in that uh, i i i think uh, to to be able to uh, from purely survivalist uh, sort of attitude i also don't see the judiciary uh, doing much but uh, i think bhavani is right we have to keep uh, up the struggle we need to keep asking the questions uh, fighting the fight uh, but um, the judiciary and uh, parliament will come under enormous stress uh, under this uh, regime thank you so much guru that's um, very important that you know the, the fight continues in terms of uh, pushing democracy and human rights in Sri Lanka. I'd like to turn to you Alan um sort of to give you the last word to really think about um what are the possible checks on um what would be growing authoritarianism or 
how to protect democracy in the coming government, but also how can others outside, and particularly the US and other Western governments exert influence on this new Sri Lankan government on issues of accountability, rule of law, and human rights. Um, and particularly given the US-China um, competition and the Sri Lanka's intention to turn towards China and other Asian countries, especially uh, for their economic needs. Mm. You've asked me a few, <laughs> you asked me the easy questions. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's extremely challenging. I think the first thing is, for you know, for the internet, for diplomats and international bureaucrats, is to just get up to speed about you know who the Rajapaksas are, who Sri Lanka is. You know, I mean, what has it been in the past? Learn its history of volatility and of violence, uh, you know, and of impunity, which is a word I don't think anyone's used, but we're all quite aware of. You know, the fact that basically human rights, grave human rights abuses, never, virtually never, get addressed legally. Um, to learn about who makes up the cabinet, what all the legal cases against so many of them, you know, just to learn, you know, get real about the situation. Then, of course, there's still very difficult decisions about how to influence that that situation. I think Guru's, you know, given us a hint. Learn, learn what the you know, really learn the dynamics within the SLPP. Um, you know, really try to learn the family dynamics, as Bhavani was saying. You know, there are no nothing is ever a monolith politically. There's always disagreements, different agendas. Um, so, you know, um, but I think um, also don't, you know, I think already from the beginning of Gotabia's uh, presidency, there was uh, a sense among a lot of diplomats, well, you know, that just give them some time. We don't really know who they are yet. Um, they're a new government. Um, I don't think there's any reason to, yes, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we know, we know the basics. We know the clear drive for concentration of power for a single Buddhist state to be more fully institutionalized. Um, we know that. So the question is, um, so to, you know, just sort of, uh, I guess the first work is just to sort of clear all the illusions and then think, you know, it'll be complicated. There'll be geopolitical, economic, lots of factors that various governments and international institutions have to take into account. Um, I think one of the biggest, maybe I just leave it on this, my, my biggest, I think one of the biggest questions is, does the Western and Indian worries about China's growing influence, it can take, it could take two forms, it could push them in two different directions. One is, okay, if China is giving them lots of money, we have to give them lots of money to compete, right, stay in the game. The other is, at some point, you know, if they get, if they realize they can't compete with China, or they realize that China can't do it on their own, do they, do these other powers start sort of playing hardball, uh, is it important enough to them uh, to, to, you know, to start sort of putting pressure as opposed to sort of competing with their own, you know, competing largesse? I think that would be one of the big issues. But it's going to be very difficult. But I think, you know, every, all, all, those, um, all those governments and international institutions that say they care about democracy and stability need to look at the very worrisome dynamics that we already can be quite clear about and figure out how to you know use whatever leverage they have in various ways to to sort of prevent the worst case scenario, which which I hope we can prevent. Thanks very much, Alan. Um, and on that, I think somber note, it is important. These elections, as we've all discussed, uh, have been are very momentous. But I think we are all going to continue to pay attention to Sri Lanka, the potential for conflict and further um, degradation of democracy. But I think. Uh, with the parliament coming, convening in two days, we have a lot to look forward to and continue 
to see what will unfold. I want to give a very heartfelt thanks and appreciation to all our panelists. I know uh, you're working hard in Sri Lanka, and sometimes it's not easy to share these stories with the rest of the world. We appreciate your work and your ability to talk to us about it today. Uh, thank you to all the audience for joining us, and we hope to continue this conversation uh, about conflict, reconciliation, and democracy in Sri Lanka. And we look forward to you joining us uh, next time we discuss these issues. Thank you very much. And on behalf of USIP, have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts.